Well, it's no shock to you that the Star Wars craze is just everywhere right now. And um, any store you go into, there are displays and and commercials, and and uh, it's just it's just everywhere. And uh, it is even in the even in the church. Um, and there is a church in Berlin, Germany, that got some press a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you saw this story, but they held a galactic service. And it was to celebrate the release of the new Star Wars film. The opening line of the article by, was done by Reuters, but it said, Children carry toy lightsabers, which I'm thinking, thanks for clarifying that they weren't real ones. I don't know why they had to say that, but... Uh, children carried toy lightsabers to a church in Berlin and some of the congregation dressed up as Darth Vader on Sunday to mark the release of the new Star Wars movie goes on about the speaker reading verses from scripture that had to do with good overcoming evil and making comparisons between Christianity and and the theology of Star Wars I guess uh, but apparently this church and and, and this pastor, they um, they are pretty passionate about Star Wars or something like that. Uh, I love me some Star Wars too, uh, but I didn't even think of, of of doing this. You'll be relieved to know I didn't. I should ask Pat to dress up like Chewbacca or something, <laughs> lead music. But um, uh, but we 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 chuckle at this um, and and. But I just was thinking of this. What, what is our church passionate about? What do we really care about? What, do, what is the face that we put forward as a church? And I'm not saying that this is a... That's, I'm not trying to make an indictment on this church. But what, what drives us? What excites us? Um, what, what consumes our thoughts and our time and our energy and, and our funds even? What would others, other people look at us who know us and see us, what would they say we're most zealous about as a church? Is it, is it good preaching? Is it stirring music? Um, some children's program or youth program? Is it our facilities? Is that what we give our most attention to? Are we, or are we passionate about anything? Um, if a news reporter came in and just kind of infiltrated our church and and just lived with us for a couple of months and attended our worship services and our and our elder meetings and deacon meetings and staff meetings and and sat with us around dinner tables for meals and and attended our events and conferences and talked to us and interviewed us and talked to our neighbors and the community around us that 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 watch us and they just tried to get a feel for what was important to us what would they what would they write about us um, what, what, what would they say? I, I, I think it's kind of good to think about that, not, not from the lens of a reporter, but w- what is it? What is it that drives us? What, what, what stands out among us? What are we really passionate about as a church? Well, if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, and if we're thinking the way we're supposed to be thinking, the thing that, one of the things that really ought to be immediately obvious is our our, our relentless resolve to carry out the mandate that Christ has given His church. To go and make disciples of all nations. It's this mission given by our Lord to the church that should define us, should should drive us, should excite us as a body. This is This should always be true of us. 
That there's a, there's always a tendency, though, and we've talked about this before, to towards mission drift, where we where we just slowly kind of lose that mooring and drift away from that that central purpose, that driving ambition of our church that the Lord has given us. That there's a constant pull, both on us individually as Christians and collectively as a church body, to to become preoccupied with other lesser things, not always bad things, but lesser things. There's always a potential to forget why we're here, what we're to be about. And so we've gone through this, we're going through this process. We started this year, this Vision 2020, looking uh, kind of down the road to the church and setting some direction for our body. And what really started this was was this desire to, to, to that, that, that things would be simpler as a body and more aligned with this, this clear commission that Christ has given uh, the church and, and our church. And so it's not to make things more complicated and to start doing a bunch of new things and kind of just be scatter ourselves and make and wear ourselves out. That's not it at all. At the end of this process, things should be more streamlined and simplified and we're more tied. Everything is tethered to this mission. That's the aim of all of this. Our church's draft mission statement, it'll be on the screen, is that we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Christ at home and abroad. And that that needs to undergird everything that we do. Everything we do needs to be helping make that happen. And And to the extent that it doesn't, we don't need to be doing it anymore. Maybe it once served that purpose, but maybe now it doesn't. It doesn't do it well anyway. And so this morning... Uh, we'll come back to that thought, but this morning we're, we're returning to one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, John 3, and where we find one of the greatest verses in the Bible, John 3.16, and we, we left off here at the end of the year, uh, and, and, and what we, where we pick it up in John 3, it's in the context of a conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus, and, and in this conversation, when we get to verse 16, we're at today. Jesus is unpacking for us his mission. Why he was sent. What he came to accomplish. What the outcome, the intended outcome of all of his life is coming. What it is. What is he aiming for. And so we need to pay very careful attention to this. Because our mission is fused with Jesus' mission. And Jesus said, we'll say, John 20 verse 21. As the Father sent me, so I send you. So, so our mission is a continuation of Jesus's mission. And so same mission, we have different roles and different seasons, but, but it's the same, it's the same mission. So there's, so, so we need to pay careful attention. It will help us inform us. What are we to be about? What are we to be passionate about? Let's, let's see what Jesus is most passionate about. What, as he unpacks his mission here for Nicodemus and for us. Now, just uh, just a note, and, and there's, I don't know if you have a red letter version of the Bible where the, where the words of Jesus Christ are, are written in red letters, or if all of your letters are black, I'm not sure how, it's, how, how your Bible is laid out. But there is some question about who's speaking in John 3.16 to 21. Is, is, Jesus continu- or is John continuing to quote Jesus? Is this a continuation of the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, or is this kind of a, a little bit of a break? And now John's making these comments after recording this scene with Nicodemus. So are these Jesus' words or John's words? Let me just say, it really doesn't make much of a difference. 
I mean, it's all inspired by God. It's all Jesus' words in that sense. And, 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 but, but in the, in the Greek text, there are no quotation marks. So we have those and you have it in your English Bible, but that's, that's, that's something the editors have, have added in trying to help us make it very readable to us. But, um, so we have to look at the context and, and see those things. But again, it's not a huge deal, but I take this as, as a continuation of, again, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and, one of the reasons is there's no transition statement like John often gives to us in this gospel account. He's a very careful writer. We see it in verse 22 that there's this clear break, clear change. We don't find that um, uh, until, again, verse 22. We don't see it in verse 16. So now what we what we do see is Jesus changes the way he speaks. He's going to begin speaking in the third person. Now, that's a little strange to us. We don't. We don't do that. Uh, I don't say, you know, Justin's really hoping for a nap this afternoon and that kind of a thing. It sounds a little weird to us, but, but we find Jesus, as it's recorded, he's, he's speaking this way many times. Sometimes he's going from, from some specific one-on-one encounter and he continues that one-on-one encounter, but it's, but he, he makes it more general and so he speaks of himself in the third person. I think that's kind of what's happening here in John 3. So, this is what I think is happening here. So, but you remember Nicodemus. Maybe you do. If you weren't here, you don't. Uh, but, but Nicodemus was this respected, influential, religious, uh, powerful, law-abiding Jewish leader in Jerusalem. He was in the upper echelon of the social, political, religious life of Israel. He was one of the leading men in Israel. And he comes to Jesus... By night, the text says in the beginning of John 3. And, and he, he has something that he wants to say to Jesus or something that he wants to ask Jesus. We're honestly not really told. But he, he begins to, to kind of commend Jesus as this great prophet, this teacher come from God. And before he even gets to the question that he came to Jesus to ask, Jesus interrupts him and he says to him, John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus redirects this conversation. Whenever, and again, Jesus knew the thoughts and the intentions of Nicodemus's heart. And so, here's Nicodemus, this great teacher in Israel, one of the greatest men and most respected and and, and, and admired men in, in all of the religion. And, and, and he, like all people, needed to be born again by God's Spirit if he ever has a chance of seeing the kingdom of God. And how can that happen? How, how can someone be born again? What must take place? And Jesus goes on to say, the Son of Man must be, will be lifted up and, and li- referring to the cross and, and that whoever believes in him, whoever looks to him may have eternal life. And so this is the very heart of God's plan that, that, that Patrick was alluding to. Looking back in Genesis 5, this is where it's all leading to. The Son of Man will come, be born and, and enter into this world and then would be lifted up to die and that all who believe in Him can have life in Him. Jesus' last word to Nicodemus here about the Son of Man being lift up, lifted up though must have been very, very puzzling to him. That, that the... The thought of God's promised servant being treated like that was just just difficult to even comprehend for this religious leader. He's not, and he's not alone. 
I mean, here we stand on this side of the cross and this side of the empty tomb. And the cross is an enigma. We sing this, we sing these words often. We, the mystery of the cross, I cannot comprehend. The agony of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. And then we sing the refrain, Jesus, thank you. It's just, we can't get our, our, our minds around the, 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 what God did in sending His sons. Why did the sinless Son of God have to suffer this way? And I think that is what verses 16 to 21 are explaining. I think that's where Jesus is going in this conversation with Nicodemus. How His being lifted up to die fits into God's plan. God's saving mission. So four statements this morning about Jesus' mission. We're going to take the first one from verse 16. I know I preached the whole sermon on John 3.16 a few weeks ago. And we'll just, we won't linger here. But, and I'm not, I didn't even look at those notes because I didn't want to preach it again. Uh, so I just tried to start fresh and getting it in the, in the context of John 3 here. But, but the first statement is this. Is Jesus' mission runs on the fuel of divine love. Runs on the fuel of divine love. See in verse 16. Why must the Son of Man be lifted up to die? The reason, verse 16. For... God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus' mission, to the, 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 the Father giving the Son, the Son giving His own life as a ransom for many, His mission flows from this immeasurably deep fountain of God's love. That's where it begins. Why did Jesus leave the glories of heaven to be born into this this fallen, sinful world? Why did he Why did he humble himself willingly and be tempted to sin just as we are? Why did he Why did he subject himself to unbelievable suffering, even death? Love, love. We see the greatness of God's love. We see it in its reach. And love is often measured in terms of its reach. We, you know, it's one thing to love our, our friends and family and, and we make sacrifices for them, for our children, for our, for our spouse, for our parents, for our buddies, you know, that kind of a thing. Even for our own nation, we, we're willing to make sacrifices, but it's an altogether different thing to sacrifice for strangers and outcasts and even enemies. Here's, here's the reach, the greatness of God's love. It's for the world. It's for the world. Nicodemus here. Oh, and all of John's Jewish readers. This would have been a tough, big pill to swallow. I love the world. God's love for Israel was assumed. But Gentiles, like us, pagans, I don't think so. Jesus makes it clear. God so loved the world. All the people of the world. And the immensity of God's love for the world moved him to send his own son to die and bring salvation to us. So we see the greatness of God's love in its reach. We see the greatness of God's love and what it does. God's love is more than a feeling that he has towards us. Warm fuzzies for us or some kind of disposition. It's not it. It's action. God takes his own son with whom he has this eternal, unique, perfect relationship and, and He gives Him to die for the salvation of wretched sinners. He gave the one who is most precious to Him for the ones who are most defiant of Him. This is the way we sing this, this great 
Him. And can it be, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain for me, who Him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's this amazing, amazing love. We see the greatness in its reach. We see the greatness in what it cost. How, what He did. And so, this is God's mission. God's mission, God's mission to save sinners began long before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It really predated creation in a sense. But God, as Pat was alluding to, Genesis, God promises this deliverer. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, after man sinned and fell, He promises deliverer. And what has fueled, what has fueled uh, and continues to fuel God's saving mission. What is it? It's His love. His love. Well, again, I, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So I just turn that around to us as we think about our lives, what's important to us, what's driving us, what's fueling our lives. Is your life fueled by God's love for the world? It's God's love for the world that sent Christ. It's God's love for the world that continues to send the word of Christ into our community and around the globe. It's God's, it's God's love that sent sinners, that, that enables sinners like us to hear the gospel. And it's God's love that should compel us then to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. It's God's love that should just cause us to move out of these walls, into our community and around the world, towards people, not just retreat into our little Christian compounds. It's like God's love that should compel us to take risks and relationships are risky. It's God's love that should cause us to open our homes, to open our very lives to people with the aim of seeing them brought to God, save salvation in Jesus Christ. So is, is, is the love of God, the immeasurably deep reservoir of the love of God, just a compelling force in your life? Are you changed by it? Are you being just constrained by it? We should be, as Jesus here is explaining, this is what fueled his mission. It's God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, as those who've been Radically changed by that love of God, we should love others, love the lost. Compassion ought to be the hallmark of, of the church, of this church. Well, Jesus makes the purpose of his love-fueled mission even clearer. Verse 17, we get to the next statement here. But verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So, second statement, Jesus' mission Advances under the banner of deliverance, not vengeance. That's the, that's the theme of Jesus' mission. Salvation, not condemnation. The primary purpose of Christ's incarnation, God sending His Son, as He says here, he's, why He came, why He was sent, it was to bring salvation to sinners. His aim was not to inflict punishment on his enemies, but to deliver them. Now again, this is very different than what Nicodemus and other Jews were expecting. 
They were waiting for the Messiah to return to judge the nations, to punish their enemies, to destroy um, destroy people. And God promised that that day would come. There were many, there are many promises in the Old Testament that they look for that day, and 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 those promises are still intact. Jesus will one day return. He will come back at the end of the age, and he will be the judge of all the earth. We'll see it in John chapter five, and we see it in many places in Scripture. But Jesus, the Son of Man, alone has the authority to exercise, exercise and execute that judgment. So, so the Son of Man will come in judgment. But the main purpose of Jesus' first coming, the incarnation, was that He would be the supreme expression of the grace of God. And this offer of salvation, the accomplishment of salvation, He didn't come to bring death. He came to die so that we could know life. This is why Jesus came. So it's not primarily, it's not judgment, it's salvation. That's the purpose of His coming. I just again I turn it around to us again is your is your life is your excuse me is your heart in line with God's in the pursuit of the salvation and not the condemnation of sinners right now as you read headlines as you see the tirades come across your Facebook feed and angry tweets as, as you deal with your coworkers some of which you have a hard time with or as you as you interact with neighbors, as, you, as you've been around family members, extended family members, some who are very antagonistic towards the gospel and towards the Lord, as you rub shoulders with your classmates, students, what do you, what do you want God to do for them? I just, I know what you would say. I know the answer you're supposed to say in Sunday school, but, but deep down inside, what is the disposition of your heart towards them? Do you want God to, to hurt them, to humiliate them, to, to move them out of your life, to harden them. Are those secret wrestlings that you have, or do you want God to save them? Save them. God did not send His Son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And if that's the mission of Christ, then... Here we are, continuing on Jesus' mission. That should be the banner under which we live our lives, in which we seek to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which we seek to make disciples in our community and around the world. And so, may that be true of us. All right, third third statement, third thing we see of Jesus' mission here. Jesus' mission divides the world as it extends into the world. Divides the world as it extends into the world. So Jesus' mission, fueled by God's love, aiming at the salvation, aiming for the salvation of sinners, it causes, though, this split in society. This is what we see here. As the the word of Christ goes out into the world, something happens. The world that God loves and came to save is divided. So wherever the gospel goes, wherever the word of Christ is preached, the that, that there are there are two groups that emerge, and so there are those who believe in Christ, those who will not believe in Christ, those who who know life, eternal life, those who are perishing, those who those who love the light and come to it, those who hate the light and refuse to come to it. Now these two two groups. There's a split. Verse eighteen. 
Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And we'll see this elaborated more in the verses that follow. So Jesus didn't come to judge. He came to save. But every time Jesus opens His mouth, every time His name is proclaimed, every time the Gospel is preached, there is this divide. Some escape judgment, escape condemnation, He says, by believing in Christ. Others go into judgment by not believing in Christ. So there's this division that happens over all the time. And you notice this shift of language and it it starts in verse 17 but in verse 16 the result of believing or not believing is a matter of life death. That's the that's the parallel. That's what's what's communicated there. It's about perishing and or living. In verse 18 the result of believing not believing it's it, it's, it's described in terms of being condemned or not condemned. So it's parallel ideas, but it's, it's phrased differently. This is the language of, of this is legal language, courtroom language. This is a judge and, and, and language of judgments. And so Jesus says that everyone who does not believe in him is condemned already. That's the end of verse 18. There's a future judgment that awaits unbelievers, but... There's this already aspect to judgment. They're condemned already. Even now we're, in a sense, well, not in a sense, we're, we're born condemned. John 3, verse 36, we'll be there in a couple weeks. Whoever does not obey or believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's already there. It just it remains. It's condemned already. I think that's the same idea. We were all born children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Paul tells the Ephesian church. And, and, and so all those who do not believe in Christ, they remain under God's wrath. They, they, they are condemned already. We are condemned already. So that's one group. They don't believe in Christ. They're condemned. That's one part of the division. Then there's another group. They believe in Christ. And they're not condemned. It's the beginning of verse 18. Everyone who believes in Christ is pardoned by God, forgiven by God, justified by God, is not condemned. But this is, this is what I want you to see. Jesus, it's not like when, when I say Jesus came into the world, as he goes into the world, uh, the, the world is divided. It's not that he comes into a neutral world. It's not the world Jesus entered into. He didn't, he didn't come in the incarnation and make his case before some impartial jury of the world. Like just, everybody's just, hmm, let's, let's, let's see. Let me see. No, he came to a world that was hostile to God. Shaking our fist at God in defiance of his authority. That's the world. That's, that's how we are in our natural state ever since the fall. And so it's because God so loved this world, this defiant world. He sent His Son not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That's, so, so Jesus didn't leave His throne, take on flesh, and find a world that was impartial towards God. People don't move from state of neutrality to either being pro-Jesus, I'm with Him, I believe, or being anti-Jesus, no, I decided, no, not going to believe. That's not how man is. Nobody was neutral then, nobody is neutral now. All have sinned, we're all guilty. Everybody is perishing, we're all born under God's righteous wrath because of Adam. We're all condemned already. All have sinned. 
Whether we stay in that condition, and this is it, whether we stay in that condition or not, depends upon our response to Jesus. But He didn't come to make neutral people pro-Jesus people. He came to make guilty people not guilty. He came to make condemned people not condemned. He came to make dead people alive. That's what Christ came to do. So this is, this is the gospel. This is the gospel in its simplicity and beauty. There is forgiveness from God for all who put their faith in His Son. All those who will look upon the Son who's lifted up. As long as you're still breathing, there's still time. And then, again, I want to speak to us, church, just as we think about, again, what drives us, what fuels us, what, what, what possesses us as a church do you see the world along the dividing lines of the gospel we're seeing here? Are you, are you acutely aware of the fact that you, if, even, if you're in Jesus Christ, though, you once belonged to the perishing, condemned, hating the light, darkness-loving part of the world. We were all there. So that... that we weren't, we, none of us were born into a state of neutrality. I don't care what kind of home you were brought up in. No kid in this church, however godly his parents are and how faithful they are to, to pour God's truth into their life and to bring them into the assembly and, and just expose them to the, to the wonders of the gospel. No kid is born into neutrality. We come out of the womb angry at God. So it's, it's so, so, we ought to be, for every single one of us, we ought to just continually just explode with gratitude to God when we think about the gospel. So we sing these songs. They were great. My sermon is just kind of an explanation point on everything that uh, everything we sang this morning. Just the wonders of God's love and His grace. I'm going to sing more of it in a moment. But, but, but that ought to, it ought to stoke our hearts. But secondly then are you consciously aware that every person in your life is in one of those two groups? Every coworker, every classmate, person sits around you. Every neighbor around you, as you look out your house and look across the driveway, the people you pass walking through your neighborhood, every family member, every friend, everybody is... It's in one of those groups. They're either condemned already because they have not yet believed or they're not condemned. They know life. Does that affect how you pray? Do you pray with that kind of sobriety? See what's at stake. Does it affect how you speak? Does it affect how you act? Does it affect what you're willing to risk to, to do whatever is necessary to see them exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Brought from death to life, from condemnation to no condemnation. There's this divide. And it's clear in Jesus' mind, but I confess it gets muddy in mine. In the South, somebody's good. He's a good guy. He's a moral person. We vote the same. We dress the same. We like the same things. So I'm okay with just kind of keeping things on the surface. And ignoring the reality, the heaven and hell, there's this divide as, as, as clear as that that's, that's present for every person in my life. God, help me to 
think and pray like that. That doesn't make us angry and strange and reclusive people. That should make us, that should break our hearts and fill us with love for others. It just as Christ, with compassion. Okay, fourth statement. Fourth statement is that Jesus' mission is assured success against all odds by the power of God. His mission is assured success against all odds, insurmountable odds, seemingly, by the power of God. So there's a sense in which, even though Jesus didn't come to judge, judgment is happening. Again, we're talking about this. This divided. This divided world. And we see it, we'll see it in John chapter 9, verse 39. Check this out. This will make you think. Turn over there. John 9, verse 39. What does Jesus say? Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world. Okay. Interesting. I did not come to judge. Here he's saying, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see, who see may become blind. And so if you read that along, John 3, 17, it sounds like a contradiction. Here, Bible, contradictions. Did Jesus come to judge or did he not come to judge? Well, just we need to read we need to read carefully. It's the context. That's the key for everything. If you read what follows in verse 17, John 3, read verses 19 to 21 where we're at now, and you'll see that there really is no contradiction. In the context of verse 17, where Jesus says, I didn't come to judge, Jesus explains that there is indeed a kind of judgment that's come into the world. Look, verse 19. John 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. Okay. This is the judgment. The the light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light. Lest his works should be exposed. So the light has come into the world. The light is Jesus Christ. The, 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 the son that God gave, the, the one that God sent. Jesus said himself, I am the light of the world. So there are two kinds of responses, though, to, to the coming of the light of Jesus Christ. Two kinds of people. Verses 19 to 21. It's the same division we saw in verse 16 and verse 18. There Jesus talked about the division between those who believe and those who do not believe. Again, we're going to see the same, same division here. But we're not going to see the word believe used at all. It's interesting. Instead he uses words like hate, love, come. That's that's the language here. And so there's this first group. Their first response to the light. Verse 19-20. There's negative response. And note the progression here. Verse 19 and 20. Their works are evil. Verse 19. They do wicked things. Verse 20. So what? Well, secondly, then they don't want their evil deeds exposed. That's not what they want in their hearts. They don't want to be exposed. So third, then they love the darkness where there's no exposure to sin. That's what they, that's now what they love in their hearts. And then fourth, then they, contrary, then they hate the light. They hate the light because that's where sin gets exposed. And then finally, this, in this progression, therefore they don't come to the light. That's, that's what Jesus is laying out with Nicodemus. This progression. This is Jesus' description of unbelief. He's just breaking it down for us here. People don't come to Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus because they don't want to. They don't want to come. 
They don't want the light. We're all born in bondage to sin. But what we see here is that the shackles of sin in our lives, they're forged in the furnace of our own sinful desires. We, we, we put them on ourselves. It's what we love. It's what we hate. We're born hating the light, loving the darkness, and we will not come to the light. That's, that's this group. And that's the judgment. Jesus, the light, came into the world. And our response of loving the darkness and hating the light makes our guilt of not coming to Jesus crystal clear. The problem is us. That's what he's saying. The problem is us. So what does that mean then though? Where's our hope? Well, if the problem is us, the hope of salvation, it can't come from us. It's not going to come from inside of us. It's going to come from outside of us. It's going to come from above. The odds of are hopeless and insurmountable if salvation is dependent upon us because this is who we are in our natural state. We love the darkness. We hate the light. We don't want our deeds exposed. We will not come to Christ. But look at the other response. And this is what gives us hope. There's this positive response. But verse 21. But... Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is, this is an interestingly worded verse here. And it may sound a bit confusing, but here's what I think is being said. And again, set it in its context. There's this contrast between the believer who loves the light, the unbeliever who hates it. There's the contrast between the believer who comes to Jesus, the unbeliever who won't come to Jesus. But the, but the ultimate contrast here is that the believer comes by the grace of God. His coming is carried out in God, by God's power. Unbelief, listen, unbelief is always our fault. Salvation is always God's gift. It's always His work. The grace of coming to Jesus comes from the heart of God and by the power of God. Salvation is of the Lord. So I think that's the contrast that's being set up here. It's sin and unbelief. So, so if we do not come to Christ in faith but perish eternally in our sins, it is our fault. And what we, what our lives serve to do then is to magnify the justice of God because we get exactly what we deserve for our sin and unbelief. But if we come to Christ by faith, believe in Him and gain eternal life, of lives that magnify the grace of God because we receive what we could not earn and do ourselves, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And so His grace is magnified, not His justice. And so Jesus is weaving these two strands together for Nicodemus, this religious, moral, good man. Who's seeking. Who's wrestling in his own soul. And Jesus, He points to him. And, and this is the, these are the two strands that Jesus is weaving together here, I think. One is the need for sinners to trust in Christ. You've got to trust in Him. You've got to believe in Him. That's crystal clear in this text. We look to the Son of Man who's lifted up. Look to Him. Come to Him. 
That's our responsibility. And then the second thread is this. Is that it's the work of God. The need of God to work. It's, it's being born again by the Spirit. So, so I, I, and this is why I bring it back to us again. What, is, what are we existing for? How are we involved in God's mission? Do we live, do we live with an, a felt dependence upon God's power to save sinners? Do we realize that in our own life, that it was only God, it was not any good, but the reason I'm, I'm a child of God and my neighbor, my, my spouse is not, or my sibling is not, or my parents are not, or my children are not, the, the difference between me and them is only, it's God. I give Him thanks and, 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 and that's, there's no room for boasting because it's nothing that I have done. So it causes thanksgiving, it causes worship. To God, but but this is the other thing. It, it it causes does other things for us. It affects how we pray. We need God's got to work. He's got to save. He's got to open blind eyes. So we're praying, but it also fills us with hope. He could do it for me. He can do it for them. It doesn't matter how how close to the end it may be for them. God is able. He no matter how many years I've prayed for them, God can save them. So it gives us hope. It, Excites us in evangelism because we know there will be success. That God's word will not return void. His sheep will hear his voice. So, do do we live like that? Do we live with a sense of God's unlimited power to accomplish the purpose that he came? There are no insurmountable odds for God. Well, I return to where we began. What What are we passionate about as a church? What... What are we most committed to? What do we care most care about most? Um, does Jesus' mission can still stir us like it should and excite us? And, and, and that's collectively, but the church is made up of individual members too. It's a body that's made up of members. So I want to. What about you personally? What, what's important to you? What can you not stop thinking about? What can you just not stop talking about? What do you talk about all the time? What do you spend your time on and your resources on? What are you living for? What would other people who know you and are close to you say that you're most passionate about? Is it some hobby? A team? Uh, a good deal? Your health? Some social cause? Politics? Our lives, our lives need to be lived on mission for Jesus. Jesus has made it very clear. He's unpacked for us what his mission is, why he came. And he's told us he sent us in like manner as the Father sent him. So we need, we need to be fueled by the things that fuel our Lord. How can we be more in line with God's mission? Just, I think, four or five statements real quick. And I, I'm not even going to elaborate on these, but... Uh, just just to, to think, how do we grow in this? Um, here we are, this is not a, let me lay some guilt trip on you, and this is not anti-hobby sermon or something like that, or I don't feel petrified to talk about the weather or something in fellowship time because uh, clearly you don't care about God's mission or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying we all have we all need to grow. We all have this tendency to drift away. We get busy. We get consumed with other things. So just a couple of ways. How do we grow in this? First thing is, 
I've said enough about this already, but warm your cold heart. If your heart is cold about the mission of God, warm it by the fires of God's grace. Just, just again, fall in love again with, with, with these truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save us. Again, let the songs we sing and the songs you know and the songs on your, on your, on your iPod or whatever you, however you listen to music, 8-track, whatever it is, that, that just remind you of the love of God and the greatness of, of God's love. Just, just rekindle, let that rekindle in you um, just a, a love for God and for His mission. That, that was, that's part of it. Uh, those, the more we realize the love that God has shown to us, the more, um, the, the more natural it's going to be for us to extend love to, to one another, to the world. Second, way to grow in this. Cut cut out of your life those things that are contrary to Christ's mission. Cut out of your life those things that are contrary to Christ's mission. What I mean is, are there sinful habits that have really just taken you out of the game? Some addiction. It may not, you know, you see addiction, you think drugs, something illegal. That's It may not be that. It may be entertainment. It may be just wasting time. But is there something that's just really not helpful, not healthy, not good, not holy, that that that's consuming you? And so maybe because of the time you're giving it, but it may just be you, your guilt. There's guilt. There's there's, there's fire. You're you're disqualified almost from a lot of involvement because so so resolve to cut that out, cut it out. Where's all right? The third. This is different, but related. Control those things that may dis- be distracting you from Christ's mission. So there's some things we just got to cut out because they're just wrong. There's other things we need we need to exercise self control for the sake of the mission. And 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 so are there good but lesser things that you're devoting too much time to and too much attention to and putting too much money on and and thinking about too much? Again, hobbies are great, sports are good and Shopping is necessary and health is just wonderful and, and social causes are, are great. But have you become busy doing a lot of maybe good things, but to the extent that you've been, become preoccupied with those things and you're neglecting the most essential thing God has given us to do as a church and to you as a Christian, your life is to be defined by this mission, making disciples. And so are there things you need to exercise more control in your life, more self-control in? Fourth, surround yourself with people who are living on mission. This is a great thing to do. Just take those people to lunch. The people you say, man, that's how I want to live. I see it. I see it. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean every moment with them is going to be spectacular and everything. They, you know, this is, they don't have the Midas touch of, of, of evangelism or anything like that. But, but there's an intentionality about their life and their for the Lord, living for the Lord and, and, and seeing, wanting to see disciples made, the lost one, believers grown up in Christ. And so they're, 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 they're wise and careful and, and active in, in, in that work. And so put yourself, ride those coattails, get close to them, fight them for meals, just talk with them, ask questions, learn from them, watch them, shadow them. Um, so that would be, it. finally, is don't delay. I mean, I said these other things, cut these things out, control these things, do this. Don't think, okay, well, once I get all of that done, then I'll start. No, just 
we're, we're all messed up. <laughs> we, God's not waiting for us to get our act together so he can use us to accomplish his mission. He's not got his hands tied behind his back. I can't can do anything. He can use us as we are. And just start, and God will grow us, and God will take our feeble, pathetic little efforts, my little, weak little, sorry excuses for efforts to, to be obedient to Him, and He's going to take them and He'll bless them. It's His grace, it's His power, and He'll use us as instruments in His hand to, to bring believers along in the faith and to see the lost come to know Christ. And so, start. Just start, start small, start today. And looking for opportunities, looking for just one more opportunity. This conference, this is, I'm so excited about this. This is, this is, this is kind of, let's just all set, let's set the bar, and I don't mean to, in a derogatory way, but set the bar low enough so we can all just get on board with our ministry to one another side by side. Sometimes it's just asking one question and it opens up an opportunity just to hear from a brother or sister in Christ and let them share what's going on in their life and to pray with them. And those simple, small things. You can do that in Fellowship Hall. You can do that standing around here after the service. You do that this afternoon with your family and, and with neighbors as you interact. Get outside today in this beautiful, warm, sunny day and, 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 and be part of this. Engage in His mission in small ways, but start. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank You for the, the clear revelation that we have of of your mission god it's we see it throughout scripture we see this unified purpose of yours throughout the bible that's unfolding and and we see it clearly unpacked for us in these words here by our lord in john 3 and i i pray that it would affect us i pray that that we would think live talk pray um, act uh, differently as a result, God, work that in us, God, by the Spirit. They may they not be, may we not be content with just kind of some superficial cosmetic surgery in our life, where we just have the appearance of of living on mission or something like that. But may may our hearts be touched and changed so that this, this becomes more intuitive for us as a body. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.